You guys can grab a seat. Good morning, City Light. Happy Baptism Sunday. Yeah. A little something we do at Salt Company when we fill up and there's people in the 1002 room. Everyone be quiet for a minute. Hey, 1002 room, can we hear you from here? Hey. Always sick. Always sick. That's awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Skyler. I'm the director of the college ministry here at City Light Lincoln. It, great, yeah, grateful to be with you all this morning. If you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles with you and you need one, we'd love for you to have one. There's free Bibles in the bookshelf around the corner. And if you do not have your Bible with you now, you can feel free to open up your phone to Luke chapter 11. Um, this text works out nice because... It gives us an introduction right off the bat. Um, So we're going to dive right into Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. So Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And immediately, I hope that we take great comfort from that question, because I would venture a guess that for most of us in the room, we would hardly describe our prayer life as a powerful prayer life. And for many of us in the room, I would say if we had to take a survey of some of the things that we wish were to grow the most because they feel the weakest, it would be our prayer life. But too often, we blame it on today's distraction culture with technology distractions, that if I was in a simpler time that didn't have Facebook or TikTok or Squid Game or Atari, I'm trying to hit all the generations, if I didn't have different distractions that were pulling me different ways, then maybe I would pray more diligently. But here's why I say take great comfort, because maybe in the ancient Jewish context where there was no technology to distract, and these men were walking with Jesus Christ face to face, they still look and see their deep inadequacy in prayer and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. If anyone feels comforted by that, the disciples themselves felt like they did not have their prayer life figured out. And they come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And there was a few things that fueled that question. The first, if you look in the text in verse 1, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. John the Baptist. They're saying, teach us to pray as John did, which is interesting because in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest to ever live up to that point. He was the greatest prophet yet. John the Baptist, miraculous birth, forerunner before the Messiah, John the Baptist, one of the greatest to live, and yet John was known as a man primarily of prayer who taught his disciples how to pray. But even that is not what drove them more than anything to ask the question, Lord, teach us to pray. But it's the first couple words in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Let me just give you a quick recap. I'll give you a few verses of what we've gone through so far in Luke. Here's some of the major events, and guess what happens before all of them. In Luke 3, 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
Jesus' baptism. Luke makes a point to say he was praying. Luke 6, verse 12. In these days he went out on the mountain to pray. Jesus, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose them from the 12 whom he named apostles. Jesus is praying before he comes and chooses his disciples. Luke 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The transfiguration, Jesus was praying. So these disciples ask the question because all they keep seeing Jesus doing is praying and they're saying his prayers are different. Lord, teach us to pray. So immediately, church, we understand that the one who needed nothing, the man who never needed a thing, needed to be sustained by prayer, to live off of praying. So for us this morning, we would be fools to say that we do not in the same way need to live and be sustained off of praying. The only question is, how do we pray? How do we pray like Jesus? How do we do it? That's what the disciples come to ask. That's what we're asking this morning. Lord, teach us to pray. But what's beautiful about our text is that it is a question that Jesus loves to answer. Here's what I would argue, is that many of us go through dry, powerless seasons in our Christian lives because we have no idea how to pray and because we don't. But the disciples felt the same way. And as they come to Jesus, you notice how there's no classic Jesus like rhetorical questions or sidesteps. Like he actually answers it. And I believe because when we come to Jesus and ask this question, he loves to answer it. How to pray. So before we start, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable of like, my prayer life is garbage, I want you to know that it all starts asking this question, Lord teach us to pray. Would you teach us to pray? So I'm going to pray for us that God would teach us how to pray. Would you join with me in praying for that? Father, please teach us to pray. We see that Jesus came and was sustained by prayer. And Lord, would you teach us to pray? Teach City Light Church to be people of prayer. We need to know how to do it. So would you bless this time that the text would teach us how we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at five observations, five observations on how to pray. We now have seen we need to pray. The disciples saw we need to pray. Now we're going to answer the question how we need to pray. The first observation is the parental relationship of the prayer, the parental relationship of our prayer. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Father, God is not the distant, powerful deity that does not care. God is not the omniscient, omnipotent timekeeper who wound it all up and just lets it go. It says that God is a father who relationally cares for you better than any earthly father. Now, for some of us, we hear father and it is a delightful term. For myself, I love my father and I get excited that God is a father. But for some of us, I know that all that we've known from an earthly father is distant, maybe not even there, aggressive, 
And we don't want God to be a father, but here's what I want you to know. What God is compared to the greatest earthly father to ever live, it's almost like there's no gap between the best and the worst earthly father. That's how good of a father God is. So if you already hear, God is my father, I'm done, don't want anything to do with it. Imagine the best dad that you've ever known. The best dad that you've ever known. Maybe it's your own dad, maybe it's another person's dad. That father is evil. And I'm not taking that from my words, I'm taking that from Jesus' words in verse 13, if you then who are evil. But God is a perfect father. Now, when we understand that this whole prayer starts relationally, it answers a lot of textual questions that come up when we look at Luke 11. Like one question we have is, I've heard this prayer recited in some churches, word for word, over and over. Is Jesus giving a command that we need to pray this prayer word for word? Or is it more a structure to help us pray? Well, the other place that we see this prayer is in Matthew 6, and it's not the same as Luke 11. There's, it's more expanded and stuff that we might understand or remember a little bit different, like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But here's what I'm saying. The reason why I'm telling you that is that if it was intended to be word for word, then Matthew and Luke would have put the same prayer word for word. But if we remember that it is a relational prayer, then we can remember that God is our father, not our professor. He wants a conversation, not a recitation. He does not want to hear the words that we have memorized and can say back to him. He wants a conversation. So if we remember that this is a relational prayer, that it's God's children going before their father, then we will know that it's not reciting this word for word. Jesus is giving us a structure on how to talk to our father, more direction on how to do it. It answers questions like when we see in verse four, and it says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. For some that should put a red flag in the air and say, forgive us our sins, I thought to be a Christian was one whose sins were already forgiven. One whose sins had been forgiven past, present, and future when we were born again, trusted in Christ. How is it that we pray and say, forgive us our sins if our sins have been forgiven? But we have to remember that this is a relational prayer. Jesus is teaching God's children how to pray to their father. By definition, God's children are already justified. They are already forgiven. Which means that if you have been saved, if Jesus has saved you, then you could commit the most heinous act of sin of your life, get hit by a bus, forget to pray, and you would still go to heaven because Jesus' grace has already cleansed your sins even of the future. But... If we remember this is a relational prayer, then we can remember that this is a different kind of forgiveness. It's not a salvational forgiveness. Salvational is not a word, by the way. Made it up. It is a relational forgiveness. It's not to, to get us into heaven. It's to restore our conscience and cleanse us before the Lord and say, I've committed sins. I've committed those. Lord, clean me. Remind me that I'm clean. It is a relational forgiveness. Remembering that this prayer is relational answers questions, like the end of verse four that says, and lead us not into temptation. We say, okay, does God tempt us or does God create temptation and lead us into it? How does that work? But if we remember that this text is relational, like a father who sees evil and danger around with his children, we're praying that God would protect us in the middle of temptation. 
that God would give us strength to endure temptation. So knowing that God is our Father navigates a lot of the questions that are happening in this text. So when we pray, we're asking the question, how do we pray? Friends, it starts. Can you imagine if every time you prayed, it started with taking a minute to recognize all the beauties that come with God being our Father? It will change how we pray. God is our Father. That was the first observation, the parental relationship of our prayer. Second observation, the passion of our prayer. When Jesus teaches them how to pray, he says, when you pray, and I want to focus on the first things that he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What he starts with, the most important thing, hallowed be your name. What on earth does hallowed mean? Here's an illustration for you. And I'm well aware that sports metaphors don't typically land with like most people, but I'm going to send it. The worst, even worse than that is picking a sport that most people don't even like, but I'm going to send it. Any golf fans? We got a couple. Hey, not bad. So there's like 14. So like everyone else can kind of just shut off for a minute, but those 14 are like, finally. (laughs) He's using a golf illustration. Like sitting up. All right. Golf, my family, huge golf family, huge golf family. And there's a few weekends of the year where it's like nobody in, nobody out, nobody talks unless it's about the tournament, particularly the Masters. When the Masters are on, it's like my family means business. The Masters has always played at a course called Augusta National, where for decades, legends have been walking on the course and have been performing at the highest level imaginable. Now, if my family, my dad, my brothers, maybe my mom, um, myself, if we went and we were on Augusta National, hole 12, about to tee off, looking down the fairway, I mean, you just, the awe-inspiring silence, taking it all in of all the legends that had walked on this course, it would be fitting for my dad to look at us and say, boys, we are standing on hallowed ground. (laughs) That breathtaking, a different, unique experience from anything else in the entire world, set apart. It's entirely different. For something to be hallowed is to be set apart, to be recognized, to be revered as holy, as different, as awe-inspiring, as unique, as breathtaking. That's what hallowed means. But what's interesting is when we usually pray this prayer, we believe that we're saying, Father, hallowed be your name, like this old English way of saying, God, your name is hallowed. But the word itself is an imperative verb. Hallowed be. They are, imper- they are commands. This is a petition. Jesus taught us not to pray, God, your name is hallowed, moving on. But a petition of saying, God, hallow your name. Make your name breathtaking, awe-inspiring. Make people see that you're holy and good and perfect and unique That's what hallowed be your name means. It means my coworkers and my neighbors and the nations, the the Turkish people and the Albanian people and the Kurdish people and all these people that have no access to the gospel. God, would your name be hallowed, hallowed before them. There are people in our city, in our country, all over the world that don't know you. God, would your name be made holy? Would they worship you as holy? God, would you do it? 
That's what hallowed be your name means. It means, God, would you make yourself known? Your kingdom come. In heaven, God's will is perfectly obeyed and enjoyed all the time. God, would you bring that to earth? Would that be more like earth, that people would obey and love you? Your kingdom come. I would argue that the hallowing of God's name soaks into the rest of the prayer. That all of the other petitions, all five petitions, come from God's name being hallowed. His kingdom coming means that his name is being hallowed. Give us each day our daily bread. God providing for his people, his name will be hallowed. Because his people are content with the provisions that he's given, regardless of the circumstance. That means that people are going to look and see that God is different. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Christians who have enemies and yet love them like they were family. That will hallow God's name. God will be revered as holy and lead us not into temptation. In the midst of temptation, Christians having strength to say, no, I'm not going to do it because God is giving them that strength and protecting them. That will hallow God's name. It soaks through everything. So church, what is the passion of your prayer? Because for Jesus, what he taught is the driving force of, of his prayer. The passion, the driving force of his prayer is for God's glory, for God. And how many of us can say that our prayers, the passion of our prayers is for God's glory? Because that's what Jesus is teaching. There's an old book called Kingdom Center Prayer by a guy named Archie Bishop. And in it, he traces through all the most powerful prayers and prayers in the Bible and in church history. And they all have one thing in common. Their prayers, regardless of what they pray for, are centered on God's glory, on the hallowing of God's name. Why is it that when we get and ask for prayer requests, that 14 out of 15 prayer requests are safe travels, better studies, or successful surgeries? Why is it that we spend as Christians so much time praying to keep saints out of heaven than we do praying that God would take sinners out of hell? Why is it that we spend all of our time praying for our needs, our agenda, when Jesus has laid out clearly that the center, the driving force of our prayers is to be God's agenda, God's glory, God's fame amongst the earth? What is the passion of our prayers? Now, it's not bad to preach for successful surgeries. It's not bad to preach for safe travels. It's not bad to pray for better studies. But are those things primary? Better question, when we pray those things, what is the driving force of our prayers? Is it because we just want those things accomplished? Or genuinely, do we care for God's glory when we pray those things? What is the passion of our prayers? Because Jesus is teaching you the passion of our prayers should be God's glory. How do we pray? We remember that God is our Father, the parental relationship of our prayers, and it's all for God's glory. It drips from God's glory. It's soaked in God's glory, his fame, the passion of our prayers. Third observation, the promises of our prayers 
the promises of our prayers. What's wild about this prayer? Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Every one of these are promises that God has already given to his people. Let me just read you a few here. This is Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Now, this is crazy. Just, you can just listen to this for a minute. Tell me if this sounds familiar, like the first two verses, or the first verse of this prayer. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you came. Then here it is, verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among you, among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. God says, I am going to vindicate my holiness before the world. Verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. Here's Philippians 4.19, a promise from God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's promised that God will provide every need, need of his people. Four says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that are debted against us. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, this is talking to believers, to our father, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and lead us not into temptation. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He doesn't tempt. There's no evil. He protects. They're all promises that we already have. And what Jesus is teaching is that Christians pray back to God the promises that God has given us. Jesus starts his prayer by saying, God, you said that you would vindicate your holy name, so do it. So do it. God, would you do it? Would you do what you've promised that you would do? I'm clinging to Philippians 4.19 and saying, I don't see it right now, but you've promised that you'll supply every one of my needs. God, would you do it? Anyone wonder why? Why would we get a promise for God of what he's going to fulfill and then turn around and pray that back to him? Take a minute to think about what Jesus is teaching about prayer here. He's teaching that God has declared that he would vindicate his holy name, but the means by which he would do that is through our prayers. God is actually accomplishing these things that he's already promised through us praying. Man, we always say, God, if it's according to your will, would you do it? We know it's according to his will. This verse is according to his will. Praying his promises back to him. Friends, we gotta know this book. We've gotta know our Bibles. We've gotta know the promises of God and cling to them and pray them back to God, not in a name it, claim it kind of way. This is my promise but say, God, these are your promises. Would you do it? Would you vindicate your holy name? Would you provide for us? Cleanse us. Help us to forgive others. Protect us in the midst of temptation. God, would you do it? We're praying those promises back to God, 
over and over and over. If that sounds a little repetitive, that's good. It is. How do I know that? Our fourth observation, the persistence of our prayer. I'm going to read this story, and I want everyone to realize how bizarre of a place this is for Jesus to teach this story. He says, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yes, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is a semi-aggravating story that's also like, what? Here's the story. If you weren't tracking with what just happened, Jesus is teaching, like, Father, hallowed be your name. Give us and then he says, here's a story for you guys. There's two neighbors, and one of them has a buddy that comes over at midnight. And so in their context, buddy comes over. I need to be hospitable. I have something for him. But I don't have anything. So at midnight, walks over to the neighbor's house. Knocks on the door, says, do you have three loaves of bread that I could have at midnight? And it tells us that this guy is probably in like a lower class, ancient Jewish studio apartment where everyone's sleeping in the same bed. And he says in his head, he says, there's like 40 reasons why I'm not going to help you. It's midnight. My kids are in bed. Just no. And then... And the verse that says it's not because he's a friend is like, I don't even like you. Like all of these reasons. But it says because of his impudence, in verse 8, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So basically, the shameless neighbor keeps asking, like keeps knocking on the door. And like all of us would, we would say, no, go away. I don't even like you. And then finally, we'd be like, fine. You know what? Just so you stop asking, here's the loaves. Open the door, smile, here you go, close it. Oh, my gosh. That's what happens in the story. Why on earth would Jesus share a story about a reluctant neighbor who doesn't like his other neighbor and gives him stuff because he just keeps asking? Because what I think of, is God like that to me? You just got done telling me that he's our father, and yet now you tell the story about a neighbor who hates his neighbor but will give him stuff just because he keeps asking? That sounds like not a God that I want to go and pray to. Well, here's what we need to understand. This is a parable. And parables that Jesus taught, most of the time, had one point. They were trying to drive one point home. They weren't trying to drive six or seven points home. So it's not accurate for us to look at this parable and say, okay, God's like the neighbor, I'm the annoying neighbor, I don't know who my friend is. I don't know what the loaves are. But if I ask a bunch, he'll reluctantly give me everything. Not the point of a parable. The point of a parable is to put a bunch of characters that don't relate to anything and drive a point home. And we know what the point being driven home is because he says, ask, you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it'll be open to you. The point of the parable is not God being the reluctant neighbor, is not us being the annoying neighbor. The point of the parable is persistence. That... When we are persistent, 
it pays off. Our persistence, going to God 30, 40 times a day, saying, God, would you do this? Would you do it? Please, would you do it? You've promised it. God, would you do it? Our persistence in prayer is the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. That you and I, when we pray, are we persistent? Is prayer your before bed, before meal kind of thing? Or is it persistent throughout the day, driving through the day, persistent prayer over and over and over? God, hallowed be your name. God, would your name be hallowed in my workplace? I'm not seeing it. Would your name be hallowed in my workplace? Would you be made famous in my workplace? For this coworker, would you be made famous? Would this coworker see you as holy? For this unreached people group, the people in Kurdistan, God, would you save them? I haven't seen it done yet, so would you continue to do it? Please, God, would you do it? Would you do it? Would you do it? Please, persistently, over and over and over. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me not, please, God, there's temptation right now. Give me strength right now. In this moment, would you protect me from temptation? Persistence is the point over and over and over. So that's how we pray. How often do we pray? All the time persistently, over and over and over. Now, our fifth and final observation makes another hard pivot. So if you're like, it's kind of hard to track this text. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Verse 11 makes another shift where Jesus goes away from the parable, back to the Father explanation. And here's what he says. And the fifth observation is the power of our prayers. So we've seen the parental relationship of our prayers, the passion of our prayers, the promises of our prayers, the persistence of our prayers, and now the power of our prayers. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, this is my favorite, asks for an egg, dad, can I have an egg? We'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give to the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's my problem that I have when we look at the persistence thing. When we look at the context of that verse, it becomes really clear that God is not talking about us praying for a new car, a new job, the pay raise, perfect health, a football team that can finally squeak those wins away. You know, we can, we can win by three. Like, that's not, it's clear contextually that that is not what he's talking about. We don't ask and seek and knock and God's gonna give us anything that we want no matter what. But here's my biggest wrestle with it. My biggest wrestle is what about when I pray for things that I'm confident are not selfish, I'm confident are for God's glory, and yet they don't happen. Why haven't you saved this person yet? God, why is this person still sick? Why is it that this, this, and the other thing, why haven't these things happened? You say, ask, I'll receive. Seek, I'll find. Knock, it'll be opened. I'm, per- I'm trying to be persistent, and it's not happening. I think in verse 11, 12, and 13, God gives us an answer in the text. Jesus gives us the answer when he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? What dad would have his kid come to him and say, dad, can you give me a fish? Something he clearly needs, and instead give him a serpent. What is this teaching? Jesus is teaching that God will always give you what you need and will never give you what will harm you. He will always give you what you need and never what, you, what will harm you. 
we might come persistently asking for something that is not a fish, but God will never give us a scorpion. This might add some clarity for us to understand why this lengthy parable of the neighbor is in between these two instructions about prayer. Because our persistence is the fish. You and I, when we persistently pray, that is the thing that we need that God will use to shape us. The things that we pray for, he will answer. God will use our prayers to hallow his name, to provide for us, to forgive us, to protect us in temptation. But when he doesn't, the fish, the thing that you needed is the persistence in prayer. The thing that we need is the persistence in prayer. This is why every time, time and time again, throughout all of church history, the Bible, all the Christians you know that are the most mature are the ones who are tirelessly praying, who are persistent in prayer. It's because when we regularly, persistently pray to God, it conforms us into the image of his son. We are praying, and that is the thing that we need, to pray to God. Now, when we look at this, I probably would assume that many of us are feeling, okay, that's a lot. I feel like I don't pray more than before a meal right now. What do I, like, what do I do? Start with the question that the disciples asked. Lord, teach me to pray. If we want to be better prayers, get this, it starts by praying for our prayer life. We need to ask God to give us a better prayer life. Verse 13 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? A beautiful truth that our prayer life comes from the Holy Spirit within us producing a better prayer life. I've heard it illustrated before that our souls are like a water balloon, that when you're a Christian, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, he's in you, but our souls have the capacity to expand and for the Spirit to fill us fresh and new every single day. So if you're like, where on earth do I start? I want a prayer life that is better, that's more like Jesus. Pray for the Spirit to give you a better prayer life. And pray, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. If you're here and you're starting to feel like the only times that I've ever prayed have been before a meal, like on Christmas, or when something goes really, really wrong and I really, really want it to change. And I really don't feel like I pray out of an anchor of God's glory. I don't feel like I really care about God when I pray. He's more or less my omniscient Amazon Alexa. That's who God is when I pray. I want to just challenge you to wrestle with the same thing that millions of Christians have wrestled with, to realize that they were just nominal Christians, Christians by name and nothing else. And the evidence of that is that the Spirit is what produces in us a desire to pray. And no desire to pray for God's glory might be an indication that the Spirit does not dwell within you. We're going to see, I don't know how many, I think like 20 people baptized this morning 
and many of them have the story of coming to the realization that I grew up and I knew the answers, but there wasn't a heart-level desire. The spirit in me wasn't producing a desire. And here's what I want you to know, that in verse 13, how much more will the heavenly Father give for you, for the one wrestling, am I a nominal Christian? Is that me? The Father gave the ultimate gift of his Son, the one who would come and ultimately forgive us of all of our sins, Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb. You will not see 20 people that get in this tank who have finally figured it out, who have finally cleaned up, who have finally worked it all out. You've seen, you will see 20 people who get in this tank and see, I can never figure it out. I have nothing to offer, but when I come to Jesus with nothing to offer, he saved me. And the same offer is available for you this morning. The same offer that all 20 of these people, that every Christian has, the testimony that I have nothing but Jesus Christ saved me when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and gave me new life. Please do not go this morning just with a wrestle that'll fade away at Village Inn. But let it be a wrestle that we actually wrestle with. Whether I'm 50 or 15, eternity is a long time to figure out I was wrong about my relationship with Christ. Now, how I want to close is I want to really give us just a really practical tool that I have learned like a year ago, and it's been really helpful for me. I want to give it to us. It's called praying the Bible. We, I think one of the reasons we get so bored in prayer is because we say the same thing over and over and over. Like we get in prayer, and if I was talking to anybody and we had the same script for like four years, we're not going to be friends anymore because like that's not enjoyable in any way. How do we have a conversation with God? Well, the way that we do it is we take what God has spoken to us and we speak it back to him. We have a conversation with God by praying the Bible. So I'm going to show you guys what this looks like. We're going to pray, but we don't, we don't need to bow our heads and close our eyes. I want you to look at your Bible while I close in prayer. I'm just going to pray through the Lord's Prayer. I haven't, I haven't written anything. I'm not scripting anything here. It, so it might not be crazy profound, but this is just, I hope it's helpful for us. How on earth do I pray for the next week? Read something in the Bible and 20, 30 times a day, when it comes to mind, when you're walking, when you're, whatever it is, pray it back to God. Something new every day that you're reading. So let's join in prayer after we pray, the te- a few people are going to come up and share their baptism testimonies. But I just want everyone to look at the text as we pray through this. Father, hallowed be your name. God, you are our Father. You care about us. Like a dad cares for his kids, you care for me. You affectionately love me and look at me with care. God, we pray that your name would be hallowed. We pray that people would see you as holy, that our neighborhoods would see you as holy, that the nations would see you as holy, that UNL's campus, that students would see you as holy, that you would be lifted up high and made beautiful in their eyes. Your kingdom come. God, we look and we see a world that doesn't yet look like heaven, and we pray. We look at Ezekiel 36, and we pray that you would vindicate your holiness on this earth 
that you would bring your, your, your kingdom down to earth more and more, that this world will look more like heaven. Give us each day our daily bread. Father, would you provide for your people. Give us a, just a deep contentment for your provision. We want to be people that are content with what you've given us. And God, would you provide for us that need right now? Would you provide for us? We trust you to provide. And forgive us our sins as we, for, if, as for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lord, we come before you as sinful people. Even the Christians, we come and we've sinned so many times this week. We want to be cleansed from it. We know that we can come to you for confession, God. Cleanse us from this. And for the people that we dislike the most, help us to love them. Help us to remember that we can love you as much as we love the person that we like the least. That, God, we need you to have forgiveness for others through us. And lead us not into temptation. We are so prone to be tempted, Lord. We're so prone to be tempted. We need your strength day in and day out to protect us from temptation, to not lead us into temptation. When the, the pride and the anger and the lust start to, start to bud their heads in our lives, give us the strength to fight temptation. Protect us, Lord. We love you, our Father. We desire that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.